0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit
1: www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here this morning. We're continuing our study in 1 John this morning. We began looking at chapter 4 last week. And last week we talked about testing the spirits. We talked about comparing the things we hear with the Word of God and making sure that they line up with the Word of God. Well, beginning in verse 7, John leaves the warning about false doctrine and he goes back to the subject of love that he has been talking about. Now, since both 1 John 4.7 and 4.11 begin uh, with John's addressing the believers as beloved, it appears that 4.7-10 is a unit. And 4.11 marks the beginning of another unit. And we're going to look at that first unit next week. Okay, What I want to do this morning is to focus on what John says at the end of verse 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's the title of our message this morning, God is love. It might turn out a little differently than you're thinking, (laughs) if you're thinking a nice touchy-feely positive message on love. Um, If you ask the average Christian, and most Christians are average, okay, (laughs) if you ask the average Christian to tell you about God, what's the first thing they would tell you? God is love. Everybody knows that, right? I mean, most Christians and even non-Christians know that God is love. Now, they probably don't know where this verse is or where it's at in the Scripture, but they know that God is love. And, and you've probably had that thrown in your face many times. You're trying to say something to somebody or talk to somebody about the Bible. They'll throw that out to you. Well, God is love. Like, that just wipes out anything and everything, okay? That's like the magic, you know, saying that makes everything all right. Well, in asserting that God is love, John doesn't mean that he's love and he's nothing more. Okay? This attribute does not make up the sum of the infinite God. C.H. Dodd explained God is love by saying this. To say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges... He judges in love. Now, see, most people would say that's kind of a contradiction. You can't judge in love, but he judges in love. All that he does is the expression of his nature, which is to love. The theological consequences of this principle are far-reaching. So what we have to understand, people, when the Bible says God is love, is that love is an attribute of God, but he has many other attributes. And see, what we tend to do is we pick out what we like. Right? Like God is some kind of smorgasbord. We're going to take a little love, nothing else, okay? But He also, holiness is an attribute of God. Mercy is, grace, justice, omniscience, immutability, sovereignty, on and on we could go. God's attributes are His characteristics, His excellencies, or His qualities exercised visibly in His work of creation, providence, and redemption. We call them attributes not because we add them to the essence of God, but rather because they inhere in Him. They were and ever will be His. They tell us something about Yahweh's substance, His invisible essence. Apart from an, an objective standard, we can make God be anything we want Him to be. So, what is our objective standard? That's a question. It's the Word of God. It's the only objective standard we have. The Bible. It's the self-revelation of God. If we're going to know God, we got to learn of Him from the Scriptures. Where else would you learn of God? say, well, I learned of God from watching TV. Well... <laughs> The problem is that most everyone believes in a God of their own invention, in some shape or form. In other words, so many of us have made up a God that we're comfortable with, a God who is only love. And by love, we mean he does whatever we want him to, because that's what love is, right? It's only what we want. You know, we like that whole idea. He loves everybody. And he puts up with everything. He's just a nice, gentle old man that wouldn't swat a fly or squish a grape. People, got some news. That's not the God of the Bible. Okay? A.W. Tozer wrote this Perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. That is a profound statement. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Amen. Amen. So let me ask you, is it right for us to pick out one attribute that we like about God and reduce Him to that attribute alone? No, when we do this, we create a God of our own liking. It's not the God of the Bible. And this is idolatry. See, believing the wrong thing about God is idolatry. Now, when we think of idolatry, we usually think of somebody in a mud hut somewhere bowing down to some you know, totem pole or some idol that he's made on on a table somewhere. Or we think of a pagan temple with elaborate and ornate, you know, a lot of people burning incense. But idolatry is much broader than that. Idolatry is simply thinking something about God that is untrue of him. It is prostrating anything about God that's not right. In its fullest stage, it's creating a God. In a secondary stage, it's making the God who is into something that he isn't. And maybe in its third level, which even Christians sometimes are guilty of, is thinking thoughts about God that are untrue of Him. But the problem is, we get these ideas, we make these things up because we're not spending time in the Word of God. We don't see the God of the Bible. I'll tell you, I can't tell you how many times when someone who I've encouraged to read the Bible actually starts reading it. And they start reading through the Tanakh and they're like, oh my word, God's killing everybody. And that's just shocking to them. They don't understand. That just kind of you know rocks their world. Psalm 50, 21 and 22 says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Don't we do that? But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Now, wait a minute. That tearing people, that doesn't sound like a God of love, okay? How loving is it to tear people apart? So it seems like we got some issues here. But, you know, are you like Israel in this passage? Do you think God is like you? Like, since you do certain things, oh, God must be like that. You think God is an errand boy, maybe? A cosmic, doting grandpa? A gentleman who, like I said, wouldn't swat a fly or squish a grape? This is the most important question here. Does your God dismiss sin? In other words, ah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Is your God at the mercy of man or nature? If He is, your God is too small. People, God's not like us. He is holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have a throne room scene. Okay, this is, we're peering into the very throne room of God. And he says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Uzziah was a great military leader and he protected Israel. He died. So, you know, people would normally panic, but Isaiah saying, well, Isaiah died, but guess what? God's on the throne. That's cool. We're okay. All right. God's on the throne. He's high and lifted up above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings with two. He covered his face with two. He covered his feet and with two. He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. To be holy is to be distinct. To be separate. To be in a class by oneself. This means that the one who is holy is uniquely holy. With no rivals, no competition. So when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. He is so far above and beyond us that He seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other. To be different in a special way. The God of the Bible, people, listen to this. The God of the Bible does as He pleases. Only as He pleases. Always as He pleases. People don't like that. I mean, isn't that kind of rude to Him? I always say, if you don't like it, leave God's world. If you don't want Him ruling over you, just go go somewhere else. Where are you going to go? <laughs> he accomplishes what He sets out to do. No plan of His can be thwarted by whims or decision of mankind. And this may be shocking to the 21st century Americans, but He is wrathful against our rebellion, yet loving beyond our imagination. Sometimes we just can't wrap our head around those two things. And one of the most concise and profound statements ever written, I think, on the subject of God, A. W. Pink says this. You know, I'm quoting some old guys, because when you go back to these old guys, they had a relationship with God, okay? Pink says this, and just think what he's saying here. He says, the God of this 20th century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle the glory of the midday sun. The God who is now talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school, mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day, and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences, is a figment of human imagination, an invention of, an invention of maudlin sentimentality, The heathen outside of the pale of Christianity form gods out of wood and stone, while the millions of heathen inside Christendom manufacture god out of their own carnal mind. In reality, they are, he says it's a figment, okay? In reality, he says, they are but atheists. For there is no other possible alternative between an absolute supreme god and no god at all. A god whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity. And so far from being a fit object of worship, merits not but contempt. Wow. That's some heavy stuff, people, but that is awesome stuff, you know. Because that's, you know, the god that most people talk about today, just like he says, like like a candle compared to the sun, it just doesn't work out. And God's holiness, his otherness is linked to his righteousness and to his justice. The righteousness and justice of God is that aspect of God's holiness manifests in his treatment of his creatures. Psalm 97 2 says, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. See, God is holy and just, and because he's holy and he's just, he must punish sin. Don't we hate it when our justice system doesn't work for somebody else? We like it when it doesn't work for us, right? But we don't like it when it doesn't work for somebody else because it just it's sad, it's sickening when you see all these corrupt officials getting away with things. Where's the justice? God's love does not override His other attributes. It doesn't eliminate His wrath. Even the slightest sin defies the authority of God. It insults His majesty. It challenges His justice. And because of our sin, people, listen, we all deserve God's wrath. That's what we deserve. You know, people like to talk about, I I didn't get what I deserved. You better be glad. Okay? You better be glad. As a matter of fact, people, the only thing we deserve is wrath. The only thing God owes any of us is wrath. And if we really understood the depth of our own sin and the holiness of God, we would thank God every day that He hasn't killed us. And if we think somehow God is our debtor, we our mind is really off base from Scripture. But churchianity today is so lopsided on the issue of love that we have decided that God must love everybody. Because God is love, so everybody gets in on that. Everybody's loved. And if He doesn't love everybody, then we can't, He can't be our God. We don't want Him. And I think that most of Christianity believes that they are worthy of God's love. They are worthy of His goodness. People actually think that God owes them. Listen to how people talk. Listen to how Christians talk. God owes them. In this twisted view, God is the debtor and man is the creditor. And you want to see this, you just see how upset people get when their lives don't go the way they have planned them. And then you get mad at God and you blame God and you, that when you do that, you're saying, God owes me and he didn't give me what I'm owed. So I'm mad at him. Most people do not want to think of God's wrath at all. Okay. Let's just speak about a God of love. And those who do believe in a God, that God is a God of wrath as well as love, prefer to think of His wrath as past tense. Okay, yeah, that's right. Many seem to believe God's wrath is an old covenant truth. We see it back there and it's kind of scary, right? But that with the coming of Christ, we're now safe to only think in terms of God's love. This is wrong thinking about God. Okay, again, A.W. Pink says, It's sad to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology. Or at least, they wish there were no such thing. While some would not go so far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight. They like not to think about it and they rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment rising up in their hearts against it. Even with those who are more sober in their judgment, not a few seem to imagine that there is sever- there is sever- a severity about the divine wrath which is too terrifying to form a theme for profitable contemplation. Others harbor the delusion that God's wrath is not consistent with His goodness, and to seek to banish it from their thoughts. Pink goes on to say, Yes, many there are who turn away from a vision of God's wrath as though they were called to look upon some blotch on the divine character and some blot upon the divine government. But what's that the Scripture? As we turn to them, we find that God has made no attempt to conceal the fact of His wrath. He is not ashamed to make it known and that vengeance and fury belong to Him. Again, he doesn't attempt to hide that in the Scripture, but again, if people would read the Scripture, they would see these things and they would be better acquainted with God. The wrath of God is a prominent theme in the Scriptures. And a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to anger, fury, wrath than there is to love and tenderness. Romans one eighteen, Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. What's it revealed against? He says, All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, if we're going to discuss the wrath of God, and you might be saying, Wait a minute, I thought we were talking about the love of God today. We are. We're getting there, okay? trying to balance the picture for you, (laughs) alright? If we're going to discuss the wrath of God, we need to define what it is. What is God's wrath? Well, first, we need to understand that God's wrath is not like ours. All right, wrath to us may suggest a loss of self-control, an outburst that is partly, if not wholly, irrational, okay? God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable. God's wrath in the Bible is always judicial. It's the wrath of a judge administering justice. So don't think of it as all God's all emotional and mad and He's just launching out in fury. This is justice. Each person gets exactly what they deserve. Wrath denotes God's resolute action in punishing sin. It's the active manifestation of His hatred of irreligion and moral evil. God is holy, and His holiness demands that He not tolerate unholiness. So let's take a little look at the wrath of God in the Tanakh first, and then we'll move into the New Testament. But let's start back there because we know it's there. We expect it to be there, right? Everybody expects it back there. Well, let's say the people who read their Bible have recognized it's there. Dr. Leon Morris says of uh, the wrath in the Tanakh in his apostolic preaching of the cross, he says this, There are more than 20 words used to express the wrath conception as it applies to Jehovah, And these are used so frequently that there are over 580 occurrences to be taken into consideration. This conception cannot be eradicated from the Old Testament without inseparable loss. So he's saying, listen, the Tanakh is full of the concept of the wrath of God. Now, i got to do this, so let me just say a word about Jehovah here, okay? In the Hebrew Scripture, the personal name of God is written with the four Hebrew letters Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. We go from Hebrew, it goes from right to left. Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. Alright, that is Yahweh's name. It's called the Tetragrammaton. This name appears 6,829 times in the Hebrew Bible. And the modern Bibles have hidden every one of them. In the first temple period, at least until the Babylonian exile... In 586 B.C., the divine name was regularly pronounced in daily life, as God meant it to be. But by the 3rd century B.C., although the Tetragrammaton was pronounced by priests in certain temple liturgies, the Jews started to avoid its use, employing instead many other substitutes. They would say Hashem, which means the name. Instead of saying the name, they just say the name. That came, came to be a substitute. Um... When reading or reciting scripture, the custom was to substitute Yahweh, they would put in Adonai, which means Lord. Alright? Now, until the early Mid Ages, Hebrew was written without vowels. By the 6th century AD, a system of vowel signs was developed by the Masoretes, alright? The Jewish scholars of the period, to aid in pronunciation. They wanted to help people out. Let's put some vowels in here so they can say these words better. So they superimposed the vowel signs of the word Adonai upon the four consonants of God's name, which is a mistake, okay? Now, in 1518 A.D., in his monumental work of Christian mysticism, the Italian theologian and Franciscan friar Galatinus, not realizing that the Masorites had placed the vowel signs of another word with the continents of Yahweh, Fused the vowels of Adonai with the continents of the divine name and thus came up with the name Jehovah. Jehovah is a word, people, that has no meaning in Hebrew or anything else. So strike that word from your vocabulary, from anything, it's not biblical. We've talked about this before. The letter J didn't come into existence until when? 17th century. Before that, there was no J. There's no Jehovah. This is my one gripe with Young's. He uses Jehovah all through there. You know, if he would to put Yahweh in the, it's like you won't find a translation with Yahweh. People are afraid to use his name. 6,800 sometimes in the Bible, yet we're afraid to say it because we picked up this Jewish custom of can't say his name. The translators took it and they put LORD in all caps. We're not going to put the divine name in there. We'll just put that in there. And it just, it makes no sense to me. All right. God wants his name known. All right. That's a side note. Let's go back to wrath. The Tanakh not only speaks of God's wrath as one of his attributes, it speaks as wrath of wrath as part of his glory. See, God's glory is intrinsic. We don't give it to him. It is his by virtue of who he is. If neither men or angels were ever created, God would still be a God of glory. God's intrinsic glory is the manifestation of his attributes. So when we see his attributes, it causes us to give him glory, to give him praise, to give him adoration. Well, this might shock you, but God's wrath brings him glory. It's not an embarrassment to him. It's not something he needs to be ashamed of, like men for losing their temper or something. God's wrath is inseparably linked with his glory. God brings glory to himself when he exercises his wrath. God's wrath is provoked when men rebel against his word. After God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he gave them his laws to guide them, to govern them, their conduct so that they would be a holy people in whose midst He would dwell. Well, in Deuteronomy 28, God describes the blessings that would result from obedience to the covenant. The covenant He made with them at Mount Sinai. He says this in the first two verses. And if... Get that if? That's important. <laughs> okay, If you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, being careful to do all he commands, that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of Yahweh your God. So he's telling you, here's blessings. And after this, after these two verses, we have 12 verses that list the blessings that come contingent on obedience. Then in verse 15 through 68, provide a much more extensive and graphic description of his judgment as a consequence for breaking the covenant. He says in verse 15, but, so if you obey, you get blessings. but if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Then from verse 16 through 68, we have 53 verses of curses. (laughs) Yeah, that rhymes. Verses of curses. 53 of them. They'll incur for the disobedience. Now, in the context of Deuteronomy 28, it's clear that Israel's not going to keep the covenant. They're going to be judged. God will not tolerate sin among His people any more than He'll tolerate it in others. The Israelites were destined to drink deeply From the cup of God's wrath. And if you read that description in in verses 15 through 68, it's just, it's terrifying. And we see many of the things, the covenantal curses described in Deuteronomy 28, we see happen in AD 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. Curses that came upon them. Women eating their own children. That's one of the curses. Numerous instances can be seen in the Tanakh where God's wrath is demonstrated. I don't know how anyone can read the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, and not see the wrath of God. Reading Ezekiel at times, I think, will take your breath away. I know it does for me. I mean, I read that and I think, oh my word. Because God has not changed, people. Okay? He speaks against Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 2 and he says this, Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord Yahweh. That sounds pretty strong, okay? Then in chapter three we see the, uh, 23, we see this. The word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There their breasts were pressed, and their virgin bosoms handled. Ahola was the name of the elder, and Aholabah the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahola is Samaria, Aholabah is Jerusalem. Ahola played the whore while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrian warriors. So now the mother here is the twelve-tribe nation of Israel. The two daughters are the southern kingdom, Ahohabah, and the northern kingdom, Ahola. These two kingdoms came out of Israel as a result of the two wives and the two marriages of Jacob. Now, the capital city of Judah was Jerusalem. Capital of Israel was Samaria. Notice what God says to Ahohabah, which is Judah. Therefore, O Ahohabah, thus says the Lord Yahweh: Behold, I will stir up against you lovers from whom you turned in disgust. And I will bring them against you from every side. So he's going to bring these people against them. Then God lists the different nations he's going to bring against her. And he says this, And they shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of peoples. And he says, And I will direct my jealousy against you, that they may deal with you in fury. They will cut off your nose and your ears. Remember, we're talking about God is love today, okay? And your survivors shall fall by the sword. They shall seize your sons and your daughters, and your survivors shall be devoured by fire. Then God goes on to say, For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate, into the hands of those from whom you turned in disgust. Notice that it is God who uses these pagan nations to chasten His people. Now, in the Old Covenant, God not only displayed His wrath towards rebellious Israelites, He also demonstrated His wrath toward the pagans. Alright? He destroyed, and we talked about this last week, but you know, God is a God of love, but yet Genesis 6 through 9 talks about an act where he wiped out every single person on the earth. How do you think this fits? Here's the ark. People are drowning. And there's a Noah. Noah says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Does that seem to fit? you seen that bumper sticker before? God loves you and has a wonderful plan. Do you think those people would have bought that? No. Nope. They're going down. They're drowning. All but eight people. All right. So it doesn't really make sense to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God also destroyed the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And after the Exodus, He employed the nation of Israel to destroy the wicked Canaanites for their sin, just as He indicated earlier to Abraham in Genesis that He would do. Look at Ezekiel twenty-five, thirteen 13-14. Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast. I will make it desolate from Teman even to Dedan, They shall fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. So he's going to use Israel to punish Edom now. he uses Sometimes he uses the pagans to punish Israel. Here he's using Israel to punish the pagans. And they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. And they shall know my vengeance declares the Lord Yahweh. So he's going to display his wrath. God says to Ammon, In Ezekiel 21, And I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you the fire of my wrath. And I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men skillful to destroy. You know, people, I really think it's good to know these passages, to think about these passages, because I want you to understand that God is a God of wrath. And when you sin willfully, and you sin in His face, and you think, "Ah, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. He will, but God still deals with us as his children. The Israelites were to be the instruments of God's wrath toward the wicked nations. All right, well, that's enough of that, right? Let's move into the New Testament, okay? Those willing to accept that God is a God of wrath are sometimes eager for the wrath of God to be viewed primarily as an old covenant matter. It's no longer a threat to those who live today. They like to think that with the coming of the Lord Yeshua, the subject of wrath is largely a matter of history. God's done with that. He's done being mad. Okay? This is crazy because one of Yahweh's attributes is that He is immutable. Okay, you understand what that means, right? He doesn't change. Boy, you need to say amen to that, okay? He doesn't get up on the wrong side of bed and say, Oh, I'm going to break those promises I made to those people. He's not angry in that sense. Look at. Um, Malachi 3.6 I, Yahweh, do not change. Alright? I don't change. James puts it this way in James 1.17 Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, watch, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Yahweh cannot change. Why? Because change is either from better to worse or worse to better. So can God get better? No. Can He get worse? No. He can't change. And I like to say, has it ever occurred to you that it's never occurred to God? He never said, oh my word, I just thought of that. He knows everything. All at one time. He knows it all. So we cannot have an eternal God and a God that changes. We need to have an immutable God because all the promises of God depend on His immutability. Have you ever made a promise to someone that you really all all of you intended to keep, but you didn't do it? Circumstances can come in your way and stop you. Or you just change and said, I don't like them anymore. I'm not keeping my promises. Whatever but God is immutable, He doesn't change. When He makes a promise, it's forever. And our people, our whole saving experience depends upon the fact that God is immutable. He has never changed. He will never change in the future. Therefore, the promises of eternal life are valid forever. If ever He loved me, He loves me forever. He's immutable. He does not change. Now, Since John the Baptist was the last of the Old Covenant prophets, we almost expect him to speak of divine wrath. But when John spoke of the wrath to come, he did so in relationship to the coming of Christ. According to John's teaching, divine wrath was related to the coming of Messiah in two ways. First, he spoke of Messiah coming to experience the wrath of God. That's talking about Calvary. Secondly, John spoke of Messiah as the one who would execute the wrath of God on a disobedient Jerusalem. When John the Baptist first saw Yeshua and he recognized him as Messiah, he spoke of him as a sin bearer who was to experience God's wrath as the Lamb of God. We're all familiar with that. John 1.29, the next day he saw Yeshua coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the expression Lamb of God here has a rich Old Covenant background. For example, we could think of the Passover Lamb. Sacrificed at the time of Israel's exodus from Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. That was a type of our Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.7. The Lamb of God described by Isaiah in chapter 53 is clearly a reference to Messiah, the Lord Yeshua. This prophecy speaks of the suffering of Messiah as a sin bearer the one on whom the sins of the world are laid and thus on whom the wrath of god is poured out our lord's greatest suffering came because he was the object of the father's wrath so if somebody asked you what is the greatest act of wrath that god ever expended what would it, what would it be calvary calvary if someone asked you, what is the greatest act of love God ever did? What would you say? Calvary. Calvary. Do you understand that? At Calvary, God's wrath and God's love. you joined together. He poured out His wrath on His Son so He could pour out His love on us. The great agony of our Lord is seen in the words of the Messianic prophecy in the death psalm, Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The Lord's crying out on the cross because He's bearing the wrath of God. Now, the good news of the Gospel is that those who have placed their trust in the Lord Yeshua as the Lamb of God are no longer under the sentence of divine wrath because Christ bore that wrath. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God has not destined us. Who's the us there? It's the Thessalonian Christians to whom he's writing to. And all Christians, but he's writing to the Thessalonians, alright? God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Christ. So John the Baptist was the last Old Covenant prophet, the one privileged to introduce Yeshua as Israel's Messiah. When John spoke of the coming Messiah, he spoke of his coming as the one who would not only experience divine wrath, but the one who would execute divine wrath. And we see that in Matthew chapter 3, 5 through 12. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about to Jordan were going out to him, to, to John the Baptist, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Oh, that's not nice, John. These are the religious leaders of Israel. You're not speaking very nicely to them. And he says to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit, he says, in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I'll tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. All right, that is a picture of judgment that he is talking about. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment, okay? I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about Christ, and he says Christ is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit That's Pentecost. Okay? What is the fire? That's Holocaust. That's A.D. 70. Alright, there's going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and 40 years later there's going to be a baptism of fire in the judgment of Jerusalem. This is talking about the Christ event. A 40 year time period. He goes on. His winning fork is in His hand. He will clear His threshing floor and gather His wheat in the barn. But the chaff... He will burn with unquenchable fire. Again, that speaks of wrath. Now, let me ask you something. Does God have a right to display His wrath? Okay, we we can agree on that. Does He have a right to display His justice? Sure, He does. Wrath and justice are as much a part of His character as mercy, grace, and love. See, many people have difficulty imagining God finding any glory in His wrath. Because that just seems bad to us. If we don't like it, it's not good. But wrath is just as much an attribute of God as his love. In his book, Almighty Overall, R.C. Sproul Jr. writes this excellent statement. Okay? Now see, I can talk about my enemies that way. R.C. Sproul, he hates full preterists. And he has done everything he can to blast us. He doesn't even think we're Christians, according to him. Okay? But I tell you, his book, Almighty Overall, is an excellent book. On the sovereignty of God. I think, my opinion, it's the best book out there on the sovereignty of God. I think it stands even above Pink's book on the sovereignty of God. I know that's, I'm bordering on blasphemy here, but I'm telling you. (laughs) I just think it is, you know, for a modern writer, this, this book is strong. Well, listen to what he says. He says, we cannot imagine God looking at his wrath like unwanted pounds he wants to lose if only he had the power. No. God is as delighted with His wrath as He is with all His attributes. Suppose He says, what I'll do is create something worthy of my wrath. Something on which I can exhibit the glory of my wrath. And on top of that, I'll manifest my mercy by showering grace on some of these creatures deserving my wrath. It's not something He doesn't like. It's an attribute of God. Of course, we don't like it because it's... Not good for us, so to speak, but it's part of who he is. Moses put it this way. The Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. When's the last time you saw a bumper sticker that said that? You just did, okay? <laughs> I've often said this, and someone who came to one of the earlier conferences because he heard me say that, that ought to be a bumper sticker. But you never see a bumper sticker like that. He made me some bumper stickers, <laughs> you know. But that's the scripture: the Lord your God is a consuming fire. We like the bumper sticker says, "God is love." Everybody's happy with that. How many people are going to be happy with this bumper sticker? Okay, <laughs> people. Divine wrath is not just a phenomena of the old covenant; it's a certainty for all who reject Yeshua. Believers, listen carefully. We all deserve wrath. But because of God's mercy, we will not get what we deserve because God's wrath toward us has been put upon Christ. He bore the wrath of God. See, His love cannot override His other attributes. It can't override justice. It can't override wrath. And so He can't take sinners like us and say, it's okay, come on in. i got a back door. I'll sneak you all in. We'll forget about justice. No! Justice has been met. Wrath has been met. It's been poured out on Christ. Believers, that's so important for your understanding. You deserve to go to heaven because you accepted, you received the righteousness of God in Christ. Believers, we have this confidence. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from Him, from the wrath of God. We're not going to experience the wrath of God because it's already been met in Christ. The wrath of God is a reminder of the holiness of God and a measure of God's hatred to sin. God's wrath is proportionate to the unrighteousness that provokes it. The immensity of God's wrath towards sin is an indication of His holy hatred of sin, which we should hate as well. Now, Excluding God's wrath and all His other attributes that we don't like has led to the false doctrine of universalism. I'm sure you've heard of that. Universalism is the teaching that through the atonement of Yeshua will ultimately bring reconciliation to all people through the history of the world whether they believe in Christ or not. This reconciliation, it doesn't matter if they trusted Christ. It doesn't matter. Everybody, Yeshua is a Savior. He's going to save everybody. Former Mars Hill pastor Rob Bell, if you heard of him, he, he ignited a theological controversy over Universalism with his book called Love Wins. See, that's that whole love thing. We're going to take a lopsided view of love and Bell's book is called Love Wins. And the gist of his book is every sinner will turn to God and realize that he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. So if you don't end up trusting Christ, well later, well after you die, you'll get another chance. Because he said in the end, love wins. Because God is a God of love. But he cancels out all the other attributes and said, I like this attribute, let's focus on that. So people here, the basic presupposition of universalism is that God's nature is love, and so God loves everybody, so everybody gets saved. I see universalism as a logical outcome of Arminianism. And I see that because Arminianism teaches that God loves everybody. Well, if he does love everybody, it would make sense that he save everybody, right? See, the universalists will go through the scripture and they'll pull out all the verses that mention all and world. And they'll attempt to put them all together and say, oh, everybody's going to be saved. Now, someone is bound to say, well, the Bible says that God loves everybody. And my response to that would be, where does it say that? And many would respond right here, John 3, 16, for God loves the world. Right? The text says Yahweh so love the world. And here we see that the object of Yahweh's love is the world. Well, then we have to ask ourselves a question. Who's the world? What's he talking about here? See, it is the common view of our day that when the Bible says God so loves the world, it means that God loves every individual in the world equally, without exception, without distinction. In other words, everybody is the equal object of the love of God. Every individual, past, present, and future, all are loved in precisely the same way. Now, that's not taught in the Bible. That's a common view in our day, but it's not taught in the Bible. Now, before you get mad at me, Please answer this question. Where does it say in the Bible that God loves everybody? Where does it say that He loves every single individual equally, without exception, without distinction? Can you give me a text? While you're thinking, let me give you a text. Romans 9.13. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Mm. Now you may say, I don't like that text. Or you might say, I never have understood that text. But you should never say once you read this verse that God loves every individual without exception, without distinction. I just showed you an exception. Okay? I remember a guy coming in our car lot who came in and one of the salesmen started talking with him and the guy ended up saying he's a preacher. And, you know, so the... My salesman loved to antagonize people. And he would say, uh, you know, you know that Bible pretty well. He goes, I know that Bible like the back of my hand. I don't know how well that, I don't know what that means. I don't really know the back of my hand all that well anyway. So I don't don't get that anyway. But, but so my salesman said to him, he goes, "Um, well, do you know that God hated Esau? Or he asked him, do you think God loves everybody? Oh, absolutely. Well, what about Esau? What do you mean? The Bible says God hated Esau. He goes, the Bible didn't say that. (laughs) Okay, well, turn with me here. he showed him the verse in the Bible and the guy got up and left. (laughs) That was it. He didn't like that verse, okay? He didn't know it was there, but once he found it, you know, he got up and left, alright? People listen. The love of God is the root of election. God's goodness causes, God chooses people because He loves them. What I mean is that He loves whom He chooses, and to say God doesn't love everybody, Is not, you know, okay, the Bible says he loves, he does love, he loves his children, he loves his elect. He loves those he's given to the son. Now, I know when I say God doesn't love everyone, people get upset. I understand that, okay? Because the modern view today is God loves everybody without exception, without distinction. But he didn't love Esau. Now, how will you argue? Will you say that he loves everyone but Esau? You know, one of the most popular beliefs in our day is that he loves everybody. This no doubt stems from John the Baptist, or John's statement in in our text that God loves everybody. But the idea that God loves everybody, listen to me, is a modern belief. The writings of the church fathers, the reformers, or the Puritans, you'll search them in vain for any such concept as that. Alright? The fact is that the love of God is the truth for the saints only. Now, listen to this, and I want you to think about this. Not once in the four gospels do we read the Lord Yeshua telling sinners that God loved them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, no mention in any of those books about God loving people. What's even stranger than that is the book of Acts. The book of Acts records the evangelistic efforts of the church, right? Taking the gospel, preaching the gospel, they're just taking it to the ends of the world, right? In that book, listen to me, God's love is never once referred to. So the apostles weren't going around saying, smile, God loves you. No, they weren't saying that. They never said that to people. Listen, it's not to you coming to the epistles, which are addressed to believers, the saints that we have this presentation of the truth of the love of God. That's where you get it. Believers, God is love. But He does not love everybody. Because He's sovereign and He gets to choose what He does and who He loves. I want to close with the C.H. Dodd quote that I used at the beginning of this message. To say God is love implies that all His activity is loving activity." If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. If he's wrathful, he's wrathful in love, I would add. All that he does is an expression of his nature, which is to love. The theological consequences of this principle are far-reaching. Yes, people, God is a God of love. There is no doubt about that. But he is also a God of wrath. He is a God of justice. He is a holy God. And these attributes are all balanced. And as believers, I think we focus on the love of God because that is ours in Christ. You know, Romans 5-8 says, but God demonstrated His love, what's the next two words? Toward us. toward us. Who's us? Believers. That's who He's writing to the saints in Rome. God demonstrated His love toward us, not towards unbelievers, toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your love to us. I thank You that You demonstrated Your love to us in Christ. Father, we rejoice in Your love. But help us not to exclude Your other attributes because of it, Lord. I pray that we would understand Your holiness, Your justice, Your wrath. And that it would be something that motivates us to live in a holy manner before You. As we see Your your wrath in Scripture, may we realize that You are an immutable God who doesn't change. You hate sin now as much as You hated it then. Help us to live in a way that brings glory to You. Glory to Your mercy. Glory to Your grace in our lives. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? Claire?
0: The book that you mentioned
1: about the Sovereignty
0: of God by R.C. Sproul, can you repeat the name of it? It's Almighty Over All. And that was R.C. Sproul, Jr.? Junior. Not correct. Mm.
1: Junior, okay. Do <clears throat> what? Almighty. Almighty Over All.
0: Yeah,
1: you didn't make that clear that that was Junior. I'm sorry, I thought I said Junior. Yes, that is by Junior because his dad... Is a little bit confused on the sovereignty of God. not, not anymore. Not anymore. He was okay. And I remember once someone asked him a question about that, and he said, "Ask my son; he knows." You know, because he knew that his son does know. All right, his son is a superlapsarian, okay, whereas RC Senior was not, so he understands the fact that you know God is in control of everything. It's not like God, you know, I'm going to do this, and then something happens. So, okay, now how do I got to get a plan to that? No. Superlapsarian is God laid it all out from the beginning. Everything. And then worked the plan that he laid out. Gary?
0: Um, I'm not real sure about this, even though this year have read through Genesis, so I shouldn't have. Uh, but the statement where uh, Esau and Jacob I love, but Esau hated, he made that statement before they were even born, right? Right. Yeah. So it wasn't anything Esau did. Yeah,
1: that's, you know, it says, you know, before they were born. Now, people want to take that that verse and they say, well, hate doesn't mean hatred there. It just means, you know, he didn't like him as much. Well, go back to the quote comes from Malachi. So go back to Malachi and God in that context talking what he's going to do to Esau and his descendants. The judgment that's going to come upon them. And if you think that's love somehow, well, then we got a weird version of love.
0: Okay. Anthony. Speaking of that, what he was saying about Esau and God said He hated him. So, what is he trying to say? I mean, say, "You know, God of the world." But what is he trying to say that the Son of Love knows God
1: knows everyone? Well, He does know everyone. There is no doubt He knows everything. Here is the thing in that verse, John three sixteen. God will love the world. All right, people take "world" there as meaning every single individual. Okay, that's not what the word "world" means there. When when he talks about world there, he's saying God loves Jews and he loves Gentiles. It was a Jewish belief that God loved only them. Gentiles were created to be fuels for the fires of hell. Okay, that's what Gentiles were for. So when he says God loves the world, he doesn't mean every single person. He can't mean that because he he hates Esau. All right, but he loves Jews and he loves Gentiles. And world is used that way many times. So he's telling these Jews... God's love goes beyond your nationality. He loves Gentiles, and they're going to see he, the Israelite was always to reach out to Gentiles. They wouldn't do it; they hated. It says context. Yeah, context is kind of everything.
0: Yeah, even if they mean? believe it means everybody? You still got people perishing in the same verse. So how does right. that love? Well, be? exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, as Jeff just pointed out, you know, God's so love the world. He gives His own Son. Those who believe Him should not perish. So it's those who believe that don't perish; others would perish. So you got people perishing, which must so <laughs> that's the that's a confusing part of the Ar- Armenian view that God loves everybody because that's what they believe. Well, if He loves everybody, why are people perishing? <laughs> <laughs> and the, so, it must be some kind of different yeah. love that He loves His elect one way and the non-elect a different way, or you know. Do you need No. Well, I might. Yes, Gary.
0: Um, I don't I'm not gonna word this correctly, but you you mentioned correctly that God's greatest display of wrath was the cross and his greatest display of love was also the cross. Mm-hmm. But people in general don't get that well they believe God is love, they want to believe He's love because of our own in nature and I'm not wanting to be held responsible for our own actions, whatever. But what would prompt God to pour out his wrath more than us crucifying his son? Yeah. That was that's I thought when he would want to destroy the earth. You know?
1: Well and that's exactly what God did because Israel killed his son and so he poured out his wrath on Israel in eighty seven. Yeah. And, and you know, that was wrath mean, like I said, we've we've read Josephus's accounts of that, and uh, I got a I got a text from Junior. He says, "How much for a bumper sticker?" <laughs> 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 I don't have a made this. This guy just sent me a couple of them. I just have two of them. So, uh, but it's a great bumper sticker, you know, to, to stick on your car. Mm-hmm. Okay, I also uh, got a word from Gennady. Gennady, if you're still watching, he says, "I'm sorry, I didn't check my phone in the morning, and the whole day was in church." Now is the evening with us, so that's why I didn't hear from him. And I, I, you know, it's not a problem, Gennady. I just was concerned, and we were praying for you because usually when I send you money, you send me right back a text saying you got it. So I was like, okay, is he all right? I didn't know if you were on the war front. I didn't know what was happening. We're glad you're safe. We love and appreciate what you're doing, Gennady. Keep it up.
0: He was having a conference called the Trump. Yeah.
1: Anybody else? <laughs> Any questions, comments? We done.